with the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. She's been with the museum for five years, and she is involved with many special projects, including this dialogue project. She came to the museum with a degree in communications, and I welcome her to the podium to, to tell us about the dialogue program. Thank you very much, Yolanda. Thank you all. Um, I'm so pleased to be here with you all this week, this week and, uh, and to tell you about our program. As Yolanda said, I'm from the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, we are included as part of the Southeast Sites, just if you're thinking about like geographically, we are part of the Southeast Sites, um, <laughs> even though we're in Michigan. Um, because a lot of the work that we do has been um, seen as it's kind of complementary to, to some of the other sites, and so we are, we're really pleased. And I've learned so much being a part of this uh, coalition and attending these meetings. Um, the program that we did worked from one of our temporary exhibits called Patriots and Peacemakers, Arab Americans in Service to the United States. This exhibit is actually a traveling exhibit that was curated by our museum. It was on display at the museum for several months, beginning in August of 2011, uh, excuse me, November of 2011 through August of 2012. So it was on display for um, almost 10 months. And it is currently on display at the Brown versus Board of Educational National Historic Site in Topeka, Kansas. Um, and it's been at several other um, venues in Los Angeles and Houston and in Jacksonville, Florida. And we're planning um, hopefully to take it to Washington, D.C., among many other sites. And if you feel like it fits in line with something that you have at your site, please let us know. Um, so the exhibit featured, uh, features nearly 200 stories of Arab Americans who have served the United States in these three areas, diplomatic, peace corps, and military service. And this, just coming up with these three areas was a big challenge in creating this exhibit because when we talked about service, obviously there are a lot of ways to serve, and that was actually one of the questions that we asked during the dialogue. What does that mean to serve? What does it mean to be a patriot? Um, even the title of the exhibit, Patriots and Peacemakers, what does that mean? Uh, so those are all questions that we grappled with as we were planning this exhibit, specifically our curatorial department. I can't take a lot of that credit, but um, we did all kind of brainstorm and coming up with what does it mean to serve. And so when you think of serving your country, obviously a lot of people do think of the military, and that's something that we definitely include. Um, most of the stories are from the military, although we do have a lot of stories from the other sections as well. And so this is how the exhibit looked when it was on display in our museum. And the way that we were able to tell so many stories is the way it was displayed, because we um, each story was featured on a cube. And so you could actually pick it up and look at it and read all about one person per cube. And so that's how we were able to feature so many in one exhibit. Um, there's actually a smaller section, that, a smaller version of it that travels. So there's two sizes that have been traveling across the country. And this is somebody um, who is actually engaging you know, with the exhibit, picking it up, looking at it. Um, behind him, you see um, one of these kind of thought panels where we ask our audience to share your thoughts. And so we're prompting the questions, um, asking what does it mean to serve, what does it mean to be a patriot. So you can see that they're on the far end of this exhibit here, uh, and there's three different 
panels, but we were able to constantly change out the questions. We asked um, five or six different questions about patriotism and service, um, diplomacy, um, you know, all of these different kinds of, of themes. And then we were, um, you know, we had people share them with post-its. And so that way, when we have them as part of our you know, archives now. So we have them all in, like compiled and every day one of our curators would go up and check, you know, check the post-its, remove them, check what people had said. Most of the responses were really positive, really interesting. There were a few things as with anything that, you know, were kind of funny or didn't make so much sense. But uh, most of it were things that, um, that, so that was one way to kind of have a dialogue even when you're not seeing all of the visitors. This was kind of a way to engage in, in that kind of a dialogue. But we did um, plan a specific dialogue program as well that went along with this exhibit. And the program was in three parts. Um, so it was a total of two hours, and we did it with several different groups. So each group would come in, and we would introduce them to the program. And we would sit in a setting like this. We have uh, an auditorium where we would have a large, we could, where we can fit a large group, or sometimes we'd put it in a smaller group that we have a classroom. And we would sit with the students, and we would explain what the program was all about. And then we would have an initial dialogue. What does it mean to be an American? What, is it, what does service mean to you? Uh, and then we would just kind of get a back and forth going. We would, we would uh, ask the students for their ideas for answers to these questions. And then we had some pre-tour reflection questions before we actually went out into the museum. Um, we asked, can an immigrant be patriotic? Do you consider yourself to be patriotic? Can one be patriotic to more than one country? And those are the, one, those are the questions that we just had them reflect on as we visited um, the museum. And um, we also asked, what is a patriot? And um, and do you consider yourself patriotic? So, oh, sorry, I'm looking at two different things. So, um, so mo the, mostly we wanted them to think about these questions, and then we kind of really went into the dialogue as we um, finished the tour. But that was the intro to the program. The second part was the tour. And so this, this time we spent about an hour. Um, we went through the museum. We went through our regular permanent exhibits, one of which is a map of the Arab world, which talks about which countries are Arab. Um, we talked about Arab immigration. Um, we defined why we consider those countries Arab and what it means to be, quote, unquote, Arab American. We, we talked about that term a little bit. Um, and then we took them to the Patriots and Peacemakers exhibit. And we spent a good amount of time in there as well. And that's where we shared individual stories. And we tried to share stories of people who had different kinds of experiences in their service. Um, most of the military stories, for example, some of them were um, as old as the Civil War stories, and then some of them were a much more recent service um, of veterans from the Iraq War or the war in Afghanistan. And some of those people may not have had as positive experiences. And so we shared some of their stories along with people who did have positive experiences, um, especially those who served in the Peace Corps, the diplomatic service. They had obviously different kinds of experiences. So we tried to share um, all different kinds of experiences with the students so that they could see that we weren't trying to present a one-sided view of this idea. Um, and then we allowed them to explore on their own as well. So we, we pointed them to some stories, but then we said, of course, spend as much time, you know, spend time looking at each, in, you know, in individual stories. And some of them found ones that we um, hadn't, you know, thought to highlight for, for, for different reasons. And so they were able to find some connections with stories that maybe we didn't think were 
um, ones that we wanted to point out in the beginning. And then, of course, we had them refer to those pre-tour questions. Um, thinking about those as they look through the, the exhibit. You know, um, for example, one of the people that we feature had kind of a controversial story because even um, his family was Syrian. Uh, he was raised in the United States, but enrolled in the, in the Marines after 9-11 and um, served as a translator in Iraq and had um, a very conflicted experience. He um, faced a lot of backlash and he was proud of his service, but not proud of the war. And he was very outspoken about it. And when he came back, and he wrote a lot of articles, and he became somebody who was very anti that war. And so um, he still thought of himself as patriotic, for example. And so that was somebody that we talked about, and we thought, do you agree? Do you still think of it this way? And and then we got a lot of interesting responses. Um, and that, of course, and that wasn't just the one story. There were a lot of different different ones that we talked about. So that was the, the tour portion, and then we went back and then reconvened, um, and we did the follow-up questions. What were your feelings during the tour? Um, did the tour affect your views on Arab and Muslim immigrants? Um, most of the people that we featured were not immigrants. Um, they were children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of immigrants. Some were immigrants who had served, um, uh, and at, and if the, ti the timing of the exhibit actually happened to be up at the same time as there was this, you know, pretty large national debate on immigration, and um, and also about military service being a way to gain uh, to gain citizenship status, and so that was one of the things that we talked about as well. So we had them define a patriot, and the way that we conducted this pre or excuse me the post tour dialogue, we had um, we had uh, posters on the wall. Uh, we had like flip charts and we would ask the questions at the top and then we would like write down the different responses that they had. Um, and then we had them answer those yes, no questions anonymously. And so each student had a group of stickers, red or green stickers, yet red, uh, you know, no for, red for no, green for yes. And so that way when we were finished we were able to see to see the response, not just have to tally it, but to say, okay, many of you said yes to this. Who, who doesn't mind sharing why? or who doesn't mind sharing why they said no, or why did you say no? And so some people um, were able to share, and then some people liked the anonymity and didn't want to have to explain um, too much their answer. So the tour participants included high school and college students. Uh, mostly high school, we had a few college groups that, that came in. And evaluations were completed by 130 people, students and teachers included. Um, the overwhelming majority had very positive responses to questions about having their stereotypes dispelled and being more likely to participate in service, which was one of the questions that we asked on the evaluation. Um, this was one quote that we found, um, you know, while we looked through the different evaluations, and I thought it was really, really interesting, really telling, because this person's talking about the difference between their parents' perceptions and their own perceptions. and. Uh, and so it said that this trip helped them to not feel so, so alone in their healthy respect for American diversity, and I thought that was a really um, powerful experience that the students seemed to have. Um, from the coalition, we definitely are very appreciative for for everything that they that they gave us and and um, helped us with, but especially the facilitation training, because while we were working with uh, museum educators, where none of us were really trained in facilitation techniques. 
um, the trainings and ideas were really helpful in creating these programs, and especially in thinking about dialogue in general, because a lot of times the tour experience is very one-sided. It's very much one person speaking at people or to people. And while we do try to engage our visitors and engage tour participants um, with questions, it's not always a dialogue. And so this was a way to really look at it in that lens. And then, of course, um, made possible by by our great funders. But um, I'd like to personally say that you know while they funded us through the coalition, we've also been funded by these um, foundations in, in different respects too, so they've been very helpful in our work. Um, our next steps, we do want to launch the Dialogue Tour as part of the, this, uh, this new initiative that Sarah was just talking about, hopefully to start in January. Um, we will focus mostly on high school students because the content of our exhibits really um, is more in line with the middle school and high school curriculum, and so that's where we tend to focus most of our um, programming, um, and then with some college as well. Um, and we'll focus on particular stories of immigration. Um, we have a lot of rotating exhibits, but we are going to focus on our permanent exhibits. So this is something that will hopefully be able to last a long time. Um, and then students will be encouraged to share their personal stories and even bring in different artifacts. And because they're brought in by a teacher in a controlled way with a classroom, we're able to speak to the teacher ahead of time and, and give them those prompts. So that's something that's going to be um, a little bit easier, I think, to do than to than in other ways of trying to create, you know, dial or, uh, do dialogue programs. So that's hopefully to start in January. And of course, we're still working out specific details, but can't wait to, to start something new. So that is my time, and I want to thank you all for that. I think we're going to take questions at the end. Okay, so I'll wait for that, and thank you all so much. Our next speaker comes to us from the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. Linda Blanchet is the Director of Program Development. She has 13 years at the museum and is privileged to wear many hats, as many of us do, and work on many special projects. She came to the museum from academia with a PhD in political sociology and a background in student activism and anti-racist work. So help me welcome Linda Blanchet. Good afternoon. I have to speak into the microphone, right? Oh, I can stand back. Okay, good. I can walk around a little? No? Okay. Um, okay, so it's my privilege to be here this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we've been part of the coalition, I think, since 2010. Yeah, that's about yeah when we started. We knew about the work of the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience before that. We're very interested to learn about their work and keeping an eye and checking out the website as it grew. And um, when we heard about this uh, project in particular, we're thrilled to become a part of it because um, really our, our director at the Museum of Tolerance, Liba Geft, um, has been saying for quite a while, at least over 10 years, that we need to be doing more on the subject of immigration, as um, a lot of us in museums uh, do and, and in any field of education. It's an issue that we need to be talking about in positive ways. We need to be reframing. We need to be communicating about in, in, in any way that, that we can 
um, as educators. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about the Museum of Tolerance for one minute because everyone always asks me, so what is this place? And I'm really big on context. I think it's good for you to know who we are a little bit before we dive into the specific program because that's important. So um, I'll just push this along here. Okay. All right. So this is our building. Um, this is an old mission statement of ours, but it still kind of works. So we, we keep it along. It's, it's very complicated to come up with a new one. Um, through state-of-the-art exhibits, the Museum of Tolerance engages visitors to become witnesses to history, puts a spotlight on the racism and bigotry that are still part of our social fabric, and challenges us to confront prejudice, including our own. Has anyone ever been to the Museum of Tolerance, by the way? A few people? Okay. Do you remember the doors that you have to walk through at the beginning? There's two doors. One is called prejudice and one is called unprejudiced. We invite people to choose. And when they go to the unprejudiced door, they find that it's locked. <laughs> they, yes. they have to go through the prejudice door because it's, it's sort of a place where we begin. If you're human, if you live on planet Earth, you have prejudice. Let's start there. Let's think about where it comes from. What do we do about it? How do we go forward? Uh, so that's really kind of our, our ethos of, of who we are as a museum. But we are the educational arm of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Simon Wiesenthal, uh, some of you might know, um, the, uh, the term Nazi hunter was coined for him. Um, he was a survivor of um, the death camps during the Holocaust. And when he, when he came out uh, alive, as one of the, he lost, between him and his wife, they lost over, I think 80 members of their family um, in that genocide. And when he came out, he said he couldn't really go back to his former trade. He was trained as an architect, said, it just doesn't work for me anymore. You know, there's no home to go back to. I need to be part of something to, to address what's going on, the, the pieces of this. And so he began to work in, in a very isolated way as, as everybody started to move on after the war to rebuild their lives. He started looking, um, hunting down uh, war criminals and was part of a new generation in, a, in our new human rights era of the po post-World War II human rights era of, of naming um, war crimes and, and seeking out uh, war criminals. So, so that's a little bit of, of where we come from. But when, when the museum was formed, he um, spoke with the, the founding um, directors and said, if you're going to form a museum in, under these auspices of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, we can't only remember the past we have to look at this for preventing this from happening to anybody, anywhere, and look to the future. So with that proviso, um, there's a number of exhibits, and uh, one of the key ones, of course, is our Holocaust exhibit, which is a sound and light guided experience. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. Um, it's very powerful. That looks at the conditions um, before, tw 20 years really before the final solution of how could a democratic society um, slide into such a chaos and, and tragic ends. And of course, the parallels for us to look at today are, are, are obvious. Um, in our other center, the Tolerance Center, we have a variety of exhibits. Just to give you some examples, our point of view diner, you sit in a, what looks like a diner with jukeboxes and watch a scenario of some kind of escalation of a conflict. And then you get to vote your opinions on your jukeboxes. And um, it becomes a stimulus for dialogue. Um, this is our We the People American History timeline. You can see someone pushing the button. You can look through different um, eras of three major themes. Uh, one theme on the timeline is our diversity, and we feature the theme of immigration on, uh, throughout that timeline. That diversity and immigration didn't start a couple years back. Uh, it, we've been this way always, um, if, you know, living here. 
Um, it also looks at the, the, the reddish-hued um, panels, look at the history of oppressions and persecutions in this country um, since it was founded. And then in the third theme in a bluish hue, oh, sorry, um, when you press the button, we look at how ordinary people, um, courageous heroes, um, unknown people we try to bring to light, changed those things. They challenged those, those forms of oppressions, and we're still part of that journey today, but we can look at how we overcame some of it together. So that's a little bit of, of who we are, and we also had this cool exhibit on the third floor called Finding Our Families, Finding Ourselves. And this wasn't going to be a permanent exhibit, but uh, it's sort of, it was big enough that it, it, it's sticking around, and it's, it's lovely. It was designed by Disney Imagineers. We're in L.A., you know. Uh, listen to this L.A. part. And it was executively produced by Billy Crystal. That Billy Crystal, yep. Um, he had such an, an interesting time when he did his genealogy of his family that he approached the founders of our organization and said, I want to work with you all in an exhibit where it encourages people to look into their family histories. So they said, okay, are you providing some money for this? And so basically between some government funding and him and some celebrity friends and other types of things, um, basically cobbled together a, a beautiful experience. Um, he brought in Maya Angelou, um, Carlos Santana, and Joe Torre to be featured, and I'll show you some pictures in this exhibit. So now looping back to the International Coalition and the Regional Immigration Network, when we thought of coming up with a program, um, something new, uh, we thought this is, makes the most sense for us because there's so many scenes in this exhibit that, that feature immigration history in the United States. So it made sense to be the, the space where we would launch something new. And because until that time, the themes were really family history, appreciating diversity, genealogy, which we thought would go over well because apparently genealogy is big business in this country. Did you know that? It's like, it's, it's, is it after porn or before porn on the internet searches? It's like, it's big. So we thought, yay, we're going to get so many people coming to do genealogy. Um, not so much. The, you know, it wasn't the big attracting thing. Um, but interestingly, the immigration theme was only sort of secondary or even tertiary in many ways. And we thought, let's take a fresh look at this. Let's reinterpret this whole space. And um, over the last few years, um, being part of the, of the regional immigration network, um, we had got a lot of technical assistance and training, um, a lot of amazing speakers, and um, just great cohort of people to be with that helped us shape a brand new program. Moving away from some of the older themes of this, we kind of rethought the whole thing. So I will share with you some of those key takeaways, actually, that we got from our, as a result of our meetings and uh, at the conferences with the regional network. We met, uh, there was the Skirball conference, was that 2010 or 11? 2010, wow. Oh, boy. Okay, so that was in Los Angeles, um, part of the southwestern region, so we're just meeting our, our East Coast cohorts, too, this, this, just now. Um, then we met in not, Santa Fe, and then we met in Austin. Got, I got to go to some great cities, too. And, and at each session, um, we had some, some wonderful, um, very intense training. So from those, things to think about as we develop this new program. Um, number one, uh, Sarah bursted this bubble right early on in the 2010 session. Um, the, the we are a nation of immigrants, which for, was for us was such a central 
theme in this exhibit. She said, well, it doesn't work so good. In, in terms of our, our goals, if, if we're trying to educate people around um, reframing immigration, not as a problem, right? I mean, as a museum of tolerance that we're trying to do, we're not just in a history museum. We're not going to give everyone this sort of history. But if central in, um, in communications in the media today on immigration is this notion of the problem. How do we move out of that? How do we, how do we feature immigration for what it is um, and, and take a fresh look at things? And the, the, older, the notion of we are a nation of immigrants, we we're, we're all come from immigrant backgrounds, there's some problems with that, and it apparently doesn't work as well, which we can get into uh, the details of why, but basically people will tend to dissociate the immigration from back then to, to now, right? It's very easy to say, oh, well, that was then. It's all different now, right? So for a variety of reasons, I see heads nodding. Um, it, it, it isn't a most powerful uh, theme for us to use. So we had to nix that part uh, or use it in terms of its context. We can look at history for, for some history and context, but it certainly doesn't end there. Then the fact of making explicit connections between past and present that when we're working with groups to come through, we have to be really explicit about saying, well, the, back then, and how about now? So for example, with our groups, we say, well, how did people come here back then? We say with our youth groups. And well, how do they come now? Um, when we say, you know, what kind of, um, how are they contributing to the economy back then? How did they help build the country then? And how about now? You know, to sort of bridge this, that it's, it's not just a back then and back now, although there's tremendous change, of course, but um, we're sort of weaving it together as one holistic story, not this separated um, kind of a narrative. Um, the third thing, this is just one example, the right to freedom of movement. Um, immigration is a human right. It's just something people do. Like, again, it's the history of the planet. You move. You, you go places. It's just something, it's a normal, natural thing, and it's, and it's, a, it's a right that people have. And they come, sometimes go, and they sometimes go back and come back. So I thought that was a, a really interesting point that was made um, throughout the sessions that kind of we thought, okay, that's something we got to use too. And then finally, um, I remember in particular when we met with the, the Welcoming America group, this was in the uh, Santa Fe, um, of course, the New Mexico meetings. Um, Welcoming America did a, did a wonderful presentation on strategic communications around immigration. Um, they'd done research on what people are really thinking on immigration um, and how we can help shift some of that a little bit. And one of the things they said was that when you present stories of immigration through a youth voice, it softens people up. People lean in a little bit more because that's just the way it is, right? We all know that. It's, it's sort of a very powerful thing to do. And we thought, well, uh, kids are always marginalized from every discussion of civil rights, right, and any kind of social justice issue. It's always the adults doing everything, even though the kids are the, on the receiving end of whether it's um, all of the, the, the trauma um, and certainly are there the whole time, if not in some cases even leading. So we thought this is kind of a natural thing for us to do too. So these are just just four, and there's there's many more things that we took away from the, the conferences. Okay, so I will tell you about the program. We decided to pilot a program with fifth and sixth graders, which is a little out of our comfort zone, because as a museum, we serve about 110,000 kids a year in field trips and they are not in elementary school. <laughs> it's only a few thousand in elementary school. Um, we do have special programs for them, but they don't tend to go to our, our, our exhibits on the Holocaust and our other tolerance center exhibits. So this was a little bit of a stretch. We had, again, some experience, and we've got a lot of teachers working in our, in our building and volunteering, but we had to kind of take a fresh look now, too. Not only how are we going to 
discuss immigration and invite people into this discussion, but, but fifth, I'm sorry, actually fourth and fifth graders. How do we do that with fourth and fifth grade? Um, and the reason we chose that was because, um, number one, hey, let's start young, right? We can all agree on that. Um, and number two, um, California Standards um, has kids learning all about immigration history to California. So we thought this is a natural partnership with teachers to help them actually come, right? Because we know that we can create the best program in the world, but if we don't have a practical partnership with schools on it, if it doesn't align to what they have to be covering in the classroom, we're setting ourselves up and the teachers up for really difficult kind of situations, right? And you probably have the same challenges where you are too. In LA, um, field trips are, are going way down. And so it just made a lot of sense for us to focus, you know, to work with teachers um, on that subject. So fifth and sixth graders and dialogue, huh? That was a challenge. Um, see, we're, we love dialogue at the Museum of Tolerance. We have dialogue programs all the time. We've got chairs and circles all over the place. Uh, you know, it's we're, it's our middle name. We love it, but fifth and sixth graders not so much. You know, they just they just can't sit in a circle for too long. Uh, we tried, and well, you can do it. We found, you know, if you have like ten kids and a really fantastic facilitator, you can do it. But we tried it this one time with twenty kids, and because we just don't have the staff to like, we can't have like a staff person per ten kids. It just that doesn't work either, right? Um, we tried it one time with a, a, a good 20 kids in a circle, and it was a big circle, and it was so quiet, and they didn't want to talk, and we ended up calling it the circle of doom. It was like this big empty space in the middle, of a vortex of silence in the middle. Um, so we figured, okay, so the standard kind of dialogue models that work beautifully with adults, not going to work so good with these kids, but we can still provoke discussion and dialogue in other ways, so we had to get creative about that. So I'm going to give you a little overview of the program. Oh, how much? Okay. All right. Oh, one other quick thing. Um, we also, as part of our model as a Museum of Tolerance, addressing stereotypes, these were four common stereotypes that we researched, figured that kids are probably have. Uh, we didn't overtly introduce these assumptions and myths into the program to hand them to students, but we had them in the back of our mind when we created content. And there's a fantastic article from Southern Poverty Law Center, there's a few by Maureen Costello, looking at humanizing the face of immigration and myths that kids have about immigration. And they're actually, I heard they're doing some more very intense work on this subject, and it's going to come out in the next few months. So we check out teachingtolerance.org, they've got some great stuff. Um, so these were four that we had in the back of our minds. Okay, so here's the entrance to, to the, what is called Finding Our Families, Finding Ourselves. It's a landing dock. You're getting on a boat to a new place. There's all kinds of, like, uh, luggage and things. Um, but before we get up there and start trekking through, we do icebreakers with the kids. Um, we have them do an activity where they have to name four people you know of that came to the U.S. from another country. We put them in small groups, and they get maps, and they have to work that out. And they come up with a lot of good stuff, actually. So it's sort of a game they have to do it timed. And then we work into, we do um, an anonymous voting game where they have to guess from these. Actually, it's changed. This is an older slide, but we have different celebrities, and they have to guess who was born in the U.S. and who is an immigrant. And, of course, most of these cats are immigrants. That's a fun thing about it. I don't know if you can guess some of them. You know some of them? Drake is Canadian. Bieber's Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, can you, yeah. So we we got more creative over the years, but um, some of them are not. That's what it's, it's a trick. You know, it's a tricky thing. You got to test people, right? Uh, so Pitbull's Puerto Rican. There's a whole discussion. No, he's not an immigrant. You know, why did you think he was an immigrant? 
Um, and, uh, you know, Rihanna, of course, is an immigrant from Barbados. So we have, uh, we have a discussion with the kids. This is with their, their, their uh, voting, um, anonymous voting modules. And we'll ask them different questions as a stimulus to then talk about, well, why did you vote that way? What makes you think that? And then we try to sort of interrupt some of their, the thinking that they may have that led them to um, choose the wrong answer. So then we, um, after doing some warm-up work downstairs in a classroom, we will come up to the exhibit. Um, in this area over here, they will have some discussion questions. They're in the landing dock. They'll work in small groups to talk about, like, where are we? What era is this? Um, and we'll give them specific questions like, you know, uh, what, would, what would you bring with you if you were going to a new place? Um, what might people be feeling when they come to a country for the first time? Those sorts of questions that they discuss in small groups. Um, and then we do that throughout different areas of the exhibit. And then there's four key rooms of the celebrities. This is Maya Angela's room where she comes to us on the screen and sings to us. And then over here, that's a, a produced film piece about her growing up in Stamps, Arkansas. Now, of course, Maya Angelou was not an immigrant, so if, if we have time in the questions section, we can talk about how we work that in and why. That's a whole other interesting discussion. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful uh, set, and the kids love it, and we'll, we'll debrief their experience in there about what, what was your favorite part of this. You know, what, did you what did she say that stands out in your mind? Um, and, and just sort of draw out from them some discussion around that, and then they go into, uh, this is them discussing, they're sitting in there, I'm watching. Okay, then they go into Joe Torre's room. His mother was an immigrant from Italy, and um, you can't see, but on that wallpapered wall, that's a scrim. That when the lights go down, that that disappears, and you see a setting from an Italian village behind the wall. So it's Ennio Morricone music playing in the background. You know, I'm telling you, Disney people, <laughs> they did a good job. So, um, so we talk about he, why his mother was ashamed of her immigrant background. She talk, he talks about it in the film, and we have a, a little debrief around that. Um, then this is Billy Crystal's room where he talks about his, uh, his family's background. And then finally this is Carlos Santana's room and he talks about the place where they came to, uh, from in Mexico. And you can see on the screen there he also plays music and it's all, these are all custom pieces that were created for this exhibit. So they're so beautiful, we wanted to make more of them. And we skipped out a lot too, a lot of the boring parts for the kids we skipped over. You know, if you come as, an as a visitor, of course, you go through every single space, right? But with the kids, we sort of, we picked and chose what we wanted to share in this program and augment um, for our themes and our goals. Uh, and then finally, when they're downstairs, we debrief it with them. And we do it, we start off with an art space activity because, again, kids, they love art. They, you know, that usually goes over real well, and it just gets them to sort of download a bit what they're thinking. They get a lot of information in this two-hour period, and so it allows them to kind of, based on some prompt questions, just sort of download what they saw and look at the diverse immigration stories that they've encountered in this two hours, that there wasn't one single story but many different layers, and, uh, and it's much more complicated than they may have thought. Um, that's the kids presenting over there, and... Those are types of things we'll say. Uh, prompt questions differ depending on the group and the teacher and what they've already learned before. But we'll look at, you know, what are the many different types of stories you've heard or a then and now kind of a comparison they might work on based on what they saw. So, um, so yeah, that's where we're at. But um, we've piloted this uh, with a number of groups and we evaluated them. And so far, so good. Everyone was happy. Happy. They love the voting. They love the stars. And they love the art. And um, then each kid p picks a different room, you know, Maya's room or Joe's room or K uh, Billy's room. They, they sort of gravitate toward different rooms. It's interesting. 
um, for next steps. There's a lot of stuff we still want to do as, as we look into 2014. For example, um, the idea of youth voices. Um, one of the things we talked about with Sarah, and we're still planning to do this, is just a big research piece. What we want to do to enhance this program is have all the kids get a different, pro we'll probably randomly give different um, pages to each child that feature a different uh, child that immigrated to this country in, in a particular era and give the story of what was the context and circumstances of them coming to this country, how old they were, what it was like for them, and put their picture. And then we want to fast forward and show, you know, 50, 70, 80, 100 years later, where are they now? What, what is their life like now? And that could be a nice also way to enter through the lens of a child but also look at the results and over time um, some of these wonderful stories. And I think that could also be a great follow-up when we work with schools to have on our website with further work that they can do, that they can research the town more or find out more or maybe even interact with the person. I, I would like to find people that we can maybe even speak to from the families uh, for follow-up. So that's a bit of a research project and it's taking us a while to get that ready but that's our hope that, that we'll do with this. And another, another point that, um, that we've talked about with our partners, and especially with Yolanda, um, I have to, you know, I sort of ask her about this sometimes, um, was how we can include um, Native American voices in this. And that's something we haven't solved because, again, we don't want to decontextualize immigration for these kids. If we're trying to complicate these stories, uh, we have to talk about the people that were here and the impact of immigration, not only in the immigrants themselves, but on the societies in which they go into. So for all of these reasons, we've got more work to do, but so far so good, and uh, we hope to continue in this coming year. Thank you. As you can tell, it's very exciting to be working with these projects. I'm Yolanda Leva, and I'm the chair of the Department of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and I'm also the director of Museo Urbano. Museo Urbano is a museum without walls, a museum with a little budget, and a museum with no staff. And yet, I think we do amazing work. Uh, we've been working with the Sites of Conscience since 2010. The university was involved prior to that, but Museo Urbano became involved in 2010. And we emerged out of a grassroots effort to stop the demolition of, a, of an immigrant neighborhood and became part of the university in 2010. We, too, are very grateful for the funding from the Institute for Museum and Library Services, the NEH, for the training that we received from the coalition. It has deeply enriched what we do as part of Museo Urbano. Museo Urbano claims the whole 2,000-mile-long border as a site of conscience. 
And our work is grounded very specifically in time and place. We see the border as a place of memory and sometimes erasure of memory. We see the border as a place where struggles have been and continued to be experienced by whole communities as well as individuals on a daily basis. We see the border as a place that reflects a long history of conquest, of labor exploitation, of the denial of basic human rights and other tragedies. But as importantly, we see the border as a place of inspiration, of vision and of creativity. We started the first part of our immigration dialogue project with students from the university. And UTEP was really a fantastic place to have this program because UTEP is literally on the border. You can look from our campus right across into Juarez. Our students reflect the population of the city. We are between 70 and 80% Mexican-American, about 10% uh, Mexican national, and about 10% everybody else. <laughs> so the university population provided a really wonderful group to start working with because to our students, immigration is not something abstract. Immigration is something that has shaped their lives, that has shaped the lives of, of their families. It's something that they experience the consequences of, the ramifications of every day, because we are literally on the borderline. This is a photo of El Paso and Ciudad Juarez and something that many of our, our students experience every day, crossing the border to come to class. In fact, any time that anything happens at the border, or not even at the border, the, the Boston Marathon bombings, meant that every car crossing from Juarez to El Paso was stopped and searched. So we got a message that our students might be late to class. So we all deal with that crossing the border and, and what it means on a daily basis. One of the things that we learned as we undertook dialogue training from the coalition was that it was important to set ground rules for the dialogue. So we actually had the very first groups come up with these, these common agreements, things that I think make sense, confidentiality, Everyone has the right to be heard, respect is key, come with an open mind, and be willing to really listen. The confidentiality, it turned out, was very important to people because people were not sure what we were doing. In one of the very first dialogue programs, a student said, is the Border Patrol going to be there? So this is a, a, a daily fact of life in El Paso where the Border Patrol goes through campus frequently. I was stopped one day five times by the Border Patrol. They told me they were bored, so they kept stopping me. And they knew they were stopping me. But, you know, it's, it's a daily, daily experience. Students 
have been very apprehensive because of those kinds of experiences of being stopped by the Border Patrol or perhaps having relatives who don't have papers or even people whose relatives have been born in the United States but have been deported or repatriated illegally. One of the things that was so striking and that was very unexpected to us when we began the dialogue programs is that it was not just about immigration or crossing the border, but it was happening in the context of growing violence in Juarez. So while Juarez became the murder capital of the world, El Paso was one of the safest cities in the United States of its size. And the students began to talk about the effects of, of the murders in Juarez. And it, it caught me off guard until I realized that they didn't have any other place to talk about it. They talked about kidnappings in their family. They talked about murders in their family. They talked about the fear of going home at night and crossing the border in the dark. Just in my own little office, we had three murders and one kidnapping. And there's only four of us in the office. So it became something even bigger. It became about how do you live on the border and deal with extreme violence every day. Since we didn't have an exhibit to work with, we decided that the border itself would be the exhibit. So we chose 20 photographs of the border, of both sides of the border, and the literal crossing line, and we put them on the ground for the students to see. And we asked them to choose one photograph that really resonated with them in some way. And then each person would talk about the photograph. And the stories that came out were sometimes contradictory, but they were always, always amazing. So we had, for example, photos like you see right here of a protest with people holding U.S. flags. On the bottom is, is one of the um, dividing lines on the border. We had photos that were local because they really did ground the discussion in very specific ways. And we learned that place made all the difference in these dialogues. We started to think of ourselves not as on the margins of the nation, not being on the periphery of the nation, but being at the center of two nations and being in the place where two nations have a long history of, of tragedy, but also of survival. The photographs for many of the students were very, very familiar sites, and that helped them think about not just their place in the United States. Many of them were immigrants or children of immigrants, but also to think of themselves literally in the geographic place where they found themselves. And it touched them in very, very personal ways. I want to share with you just a couple of the stories that came out as students looked at the photographs. So here's one photograph that is one that people frequently choose and have different things to say about it. One student said, this reminds me of my family in Mexico. The fence is clear, but the American flag is fuzzy. 
It is fuzzy because it is impossible to come here. The process takes too long and it is too expensive. This is a photo of the fence, part of the fence in El Paso. My son and I take the bus every day and we pass by the fence. To me, it is a sign of safety going both ways. Other people had very different opinions of the fence. Someone looked at this photograph and said, my mother was here without papers. Now she is a resident, but not a citizen. They treat us like criminals. My mother is not a criminal. That kind of sentiment was expressed frequently in our dialogue programs. You know, one thing I have to say just to contextualize it is that I come from a very poor community. And the neighborhood from which we emerged is one of the poorest communities in the United States. It's the poorest zip code in the United States. The income in my community is very low, and to be a border patrolman is one of the best paying jobs and most sought after jobs because you have benefits and you have great pay. So it's a very complex situation to show a picture like this to people who might want to be border patrolmen. When we showed pictures of people crossing, we got various stories. My uncle tried to cross, but he got caught and deported. I haven't seen him for 12 years. He was like a father to me. So these kinds of stories of the separation of families also were told frequently. When we asked students would they participate again, they talked about how good it was to realize that they weren't alone. They talked about how it opened their minds. They talked about how it created common ground for them to talk about their daily lives. And they talked about how they wanted to know more about the history of immigration. And they wanted to know more about what they could do. And that's precisely what the coalition is about. What can you actually do once you have this information? We learned a lot in doing the early dialogues with the students. The students actually asked us to take it out to the community. So starting in 2014, we're going to be holding dialogues with a nonprofit, La Mujer Obrera. La Mujer Obrera is an organization that's been around about 30 years and works with displaced women garment workers, most of whom are immigrants. Or, the, or some are the children of immigrants. And they're also located in a very poor neighborhood. So we're gonna start working with them in January to, to talk to neighborhood women about immigration. And I think that's going to also be very exciting and a good partnership because they also believe in taking action towards social justice. It's been a very heart-wrenching experience to hear some of the stories and it's also been a very encouraging and hopeful experience as people learn to share with each other things that were very personal to them and things that they don't usually talk about outside their family and very hopeful because they were willing to trust that process. We have time for, for questions. Thank you.
Yes, sir.